welcome to Writing Wrong Way, where we talk about how writing works, how writers work, and how the best writers risk being strange. But I'm not talking to a writer so much today. I'm talking to an agent. I have a lot of questions uh, that come to me about agents. And I thought, rather than answer these questions myself, let's just get an agent to answer uh, the kinds of questions that I typically get asked about agents. And I think the best way to do this is to just really just dive in. There's links in the description for this episode uh, where you can go to the manuscript wish list that Emmy has and you can kind of walk through that uh, with me and Emmy as we kind of get into what writers should consider regarding agents. Talking to Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, and Emmy is an agent with uh, Westwood Creative Artists. And Emmy, I think that a good way to kind of get through this, uh, as we were talking about before, and I think something would be really useful to you listening is if we just walk through Emmy's manuscript wish list. Uh, so, you know, Emmy has actually done a very lengthy, like when I printed it out, it was eight pages long. Uh, it's a very kind of lengthy, well-considered uh, manuscript wish list. So you can find this, you know, uh, if you just search, you know, for Emmy Nordstrom Higdon, my manuscript wish list, or, you know, go to Westwood Creative Artists, uh, their page for uh, Emmy. We'll link off to this. Uh, and, you know, there's all sorts of ways you can get a hold of this document. I'm going to quote from it and talk really specifically about parts of it and get, you know, Emmy to explain a bit more. But I think like the, just the first thing that would, I think, be helpful uh, to everybody is just if you kind of would talk a little bit about how you come to be an agent, because as you note here, uh, you've got a PhD uh, in justice-oriented social work and even have peer-reviewed uh, publications in public health and psychology. So I don't think like there's an obvious path from that to being a no. literary agent. No, it's true. Um... I did have a full career in social work. I would say that I practiced for about, I guess, on and off for 10 years or so um, before I came to publishing. So it's not the most traditional path to get here. Um, I actually, so I started working in social work when I was pretty young. I did frontline social work as an emergency shelter worker mostly, and I worked in mental health and addictions for a while. Um, and that definitely informs kind of the approach I take to my agenting work as well. Um, so I started, when I was working on my PhD, I started working at an independent bookstore in Toronto. Um, I was hired here because I had a background in social justice work and they were looking for someone to kind of curate, help curate the shelves alongside, you know, the regular bookseller kind of tasks of, you know, like the retail world. Um, but they do, the store that I worked at did a lot of work with educators and with school boards. And so my, one of my primary responsibilities at the time was to kind of re, we, we read a lot of books and made a lot of recommendations to teachers and to caregivers and to educators of all different kinds um, about like what kinds of books they should be including in their curriculum, on their classroom bookshelves, in their libraries, um, home libraries, all the way up to like, you know, university course, um, recommended reading lists, that kind of thing. And so um, I did that part-time throughout most of my PhD, just earning money. Um, and at some point I decided, I, I was also working in research um, at the time. And at some point I decided like, you know, I'm not, I don't think that I'm ready to jump in and go down this like tenured professor <laughs> route um, as far as my academic career goes. So I started thinking about different ways I could use kind of the research background I had and um, the social justice background I had to make kind of a lateral career move. And it was actually from listening to a podcast that I discovered what kind of the day-to-day -day was like for agents. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, that's a lot of the kinds of things that I do now. It's just a different different industry. And so, um, yeah, I ended up taking an internship at the Wrights Factory. They were incredibly generous with me, um, <laughs> sort of marching in, having no idea what I was doing at all. Um, Sam Hyatt, who is the sort of the founding agent there, um, was incredibly welcoming and generous with um, what he was willing to teach me. And that was kind of how I got started. One thing, reason I want to talk to you uh, about 
an agent in this particular, being an agent in this particular way of going through your wish list uh, is as we were kind of talking about on email, I think a lot of writers have the idea that all agents are the same yeah, <laughs> uh, and that they do the same things and that, sure. you know, there's not a, whereas I, I think you'd probably agree that like, it's very much about this relationship you have with the agent and do you fit with the agent? Yes, they, 100%. Are they a fan of you, you know, in a, in yeah. a, in a, in a way like, and, and can they represent you uh, not just, you know, where they're tr- going to get you the most money and, and the most power, but like, mm-hmm. are they like a good advocate for what you want to do? Because sometimes it can be a bad idea to get a bit of advance. You know, sometimes 100%. it can, yeah. you know, like there's a lot of like things that come into play and it really gets into like, what's, are you trying to accomplish as a writer? Uh, does this person see like your vision and share your vision? And, and I'm just curious before we get into kind of the minutiae here, how do you yeah. see the agent author relationship? Uh, yeah, it's incredibly unique. When people talk about agenting sort of in a homogenous way, it, it, it mostly confuses me um, because it couldn't be like it couldn't be less true that all agents are the same. We're definitely all very, very different. Um, And that's one of the things that's hard about the industry. It's also one of the things I like about it in some senses, because um, the way that most agencies work is that it's sort of a collective of people who all do the same kind of job function. But I would say that we all do it at most agencies anyway. We're all given the freedom to sort of do it in our own way, which is something that I'm super grateful for. we all definitely have our own goals as well within agenting. And I think that that plays a role in, in the relationship as well. So one of the things that I'm really passionate about is advocating for marginalized authors um, and seeing the kinds of books that I can see myself reflected in as a reader on shelves, whether that's like a literal reflection, like someone who shares sort of one of the identity markers that I have, or whether it's more of like a figurative, you know, like an emotional reflection or a thematic reflection or what have you. Um, And I think that there is space for more of that like in the industry overall so that's something that I take into consideration with all of my books and it's not something that necessarily all agents do take into consideration when they're looking for authors to represent or when they're advocating choosing what they're going to advocate for um, in terms of acquisitions or in terms of what authors should be prioritizing that kind of thing Um, I definitely have authors like I would say my clients who I currently work with are on like a spectrum of, you know, caring about or being invested in that goal of mine. But one of the first things that I always ask people who are querying with me is what their goals are and what they're looking for in an agent, because um, I'm not necessarily the type of agent. I don't like, I'm not fooling myself in the sense that I know that my role is primarily as a salesperson, but I don't really see myself as like valuing that as much as I value, you know, getting books that I think are really, really important or thought provoking or interesting for some reason um, into the hands of readers. And so, yeah, I do really think that, and it's also true that the business considerations of agenting aren't necessarily as straightforward as some authors think. So yeah, the advance is a really, really good example of that. I mean, it's great when we can get a huge advance for an author. Obviously we want everyone to be well compensated for their work, but in terms of being, especially a debut author, there's a lot to think about in terms of how that will reflect on you going forward. Also, like whether or not your sales are able to match that advanced amount so that you end up getting royalties, which are a more sustainable source of income. There's all kinds of considerations. So I think that, yeah, the role of an agent is not necessarily kind of a one size fits all model. I think it definitely has a lot to do with um, where authors see themselves going and what kinds of supports they're looking for in their work. I think the advance is a nice quick example of something I yeah. want to talk in a bit of a different way about, which is there's a lot of, I think, assumptions or, you know, myths that people have about the publishing industry and about agents and how they fit into the publishing industry. And I see a lot of them tied to advance. One really simple thing a lot of writers don't understand is that there is a tax difference between this big <laughs> giant chunk of money <laughs> yes. and a bunch of smaller amounts of money, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so like you, you could get you, that same amount of money coming in a big lump sum or like, you know, over a couple of years in royalties is yeah. going to get taxed differently. Like, exactly. Uh, 
so th there is like really just simple practical things to consider, but then there's like the death spiral as you, uh, of like, you know, the midlist death spiral, I think it's been named where, you know, the yeah. orders coming for the next book are going to be contingent potentially on sales of this book. Like there's all sorts Absolutely. of like complicated things that I don't think authors should think too much about that stuff, no. but it's <laughs> like, you need to either be thinking about it or have the agent thinking about it for you. Right. Like, and, and not yeah. necessarily just the obvious things. Like one thing that's in strikes me in your wish list here, just to kind of mm -hmm. jump ahead to a different section for so there's a couple of things like this where you note here I have a strong preference for standalone books. I yeah. think most writers would be surprised by that because yeah. there is a perception amongst writers that uh, agents and publishers want series. I don't think right. that's really true at this point. Uh, I mean, it's sometimes true, sure, but I think can you talk a bit more about that? Why do you have a strong preference for standalone books? Yeah, I think that's definitely a misconception. And I think that it has to do with the way that sort of sales and marketing have changed over time. Um, the reason why I prefer standalone books and part of it, part of it has to do with the fact that I'm a newer agent as well. So um, when I think about the authors who might be querying me, you know, if a best-selling New York Times best-selling author came to me and said, you know, I wrote this trilogy, I'd be like, awesome. <laughs> because often, you know, publishers are going to look back at your publication history in terms of making their decisions, especially when they're negotiating how many books to sign a contract for. Um, so that's, that's sort of one aspect is that as an agent who's only been working for two years, I don't get a lot of queries from really, really well-established authors who already have, you know, amazing sales records that they can, that I can take to publishers and say, listen, this author has proven that, you know, there's an appetite for their work and that if you produce three more of their books, they will all sell. Um, so what often happens is that, you know, we'll take a book out on submission and once we get an offer of acquisition, we have to sort of negotiate with the publisher what that contract is actually for, right? So um, it's never, I don't know that ever a publisher comes into it with sort of like a set idea in mind of what they want. It usually has to do with the individual editor and kind of what kind of climate their imprint is in that year. Um, I think all publishers have different preferences, but yeah, these days, often what you'll see, especially in young adult, is like a two book deal where you know the first book is kind of the the quote unquote breakout book so that's like the sure thing that the editor is kind of pinning their hopes and dreams on and then the second book is meant to sort of follow up that book and the i mean the catch with that arrangement is that the first book has to do really really well right the author is pinning their expectations on the sales of that first book so when I say that I like standalone books in my query inbox, it's often because my preference is to be able to go to a publisher and negotiate a single book deal that's really, really favorable. So that, you know, everyone's hopes, I think, are that the first book will break out, it will be fantastic. But if they, for some reason, you know, something happens and the sales are moderate, the author's future publication and their experience with that imprint aren't completely contingent on having had a breakout bestseller the first time around. Um, and when people come with, with series or with like trilogies or duologies even, um, they can be really, really difficult to sell for that reason. Because these days, publishers, I think, are making fewer and fewer of those deals where they think they have a sure thing right off the bat. Um, and I think that's actually probably beneficial for authors, sort of on the whole. It doesn't mean that the door's not open for series, um, especially through options in contracts that you know when the first book does do really really fantastic in terms of its um like numbers but i think that the sell is definitely easier on um a standalone great book that an, a reader can pick up and get a really satisfying experience out of as a you know one shot kind of project now you're also note here uh, a little further on that you're not you're interested in high concept horror, you know, body horror, ghost stories, occult, spiritualism, psychological, social, political, weird, no zombies, please. Uh, I think that is something that would trip up a lot of people because again, true. <laughs> now you use zombies here, but it's, it used to be vampires, right? Like it, 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 there'll be these cycles of monsters that come around where it just seems like they're everywhere. And writers often will have the perception that, oh, well, then publishing world must be looking for this. This is the new trend. And they'll start- yeah. <laughs> 
what I always tell writers is that if, if there's a bandwagon going by your house, it's too late to jump on the bandwagon. It is. It means that like three years ago, that was the bandwagon in terms mm. of books that we've submitted. Um, also, I should say there are some items on my manuscript wish list which will never change no matter what the bandwagon is, <laughs> though, and zombies are one of them. <laughs> they creep me out. <laughs> so generally like speaking, well, I don't like characters who I fall in love with slowly and irreversibly wasting <laughs> away in front of my eyes. Sure, sure. Um, but no, I mean, the, but part of it is that, yeah, like, anything that is selling really, really well, like in the moment, it means that those books were acquired like two or three seasons ago, right? And so editors at this point are looking for the next thing that will sell really, really well, not the thing that is currently selling really, really well. Um, and they already signed 10 other ones exactly. just like that or, or have <laughs> yeah. printed them or in the 80s, Vampire Diaries was one thing where That's it. they just like, yeah, let's just pump more money into this book we already own, you know, uh, as opposed yes. to like make a new acquisition, which makes sense. It's already- yep. in, you know, but people don't often realize that as writers and I'll see writers. I mean, if you want to write a zombie novel, write a zombie novel, but I'll see like writers, you know, writing zombie novels and they don't necessarily have a real affinity for the genre. They just think like it's hot. And that attitude I find one, it produces a bad book. And I don't feel personally that you can overcome a bad book. uh, No matter what. It's really, really hard. It's really hard. You get bad books published, uh, but they are, in many ways, the exception rather than the rule, <laughs> despite what people want to say. Um, yep. And even when they are published, there's typically some mitigating reason they've been published, like, the, you know, uh, s- someone incredibly famous has published it exactly. or what have you, like Snooki <laughs> wrote it um, yep. <laughs> or, or what you not, you know. But uh, anyway, it's worth noting that part of your answer there is just like a pure personal thing. Like, you know, no matter how yeah. good or saleable a zombie novel might be, if you're not <laughs> the fit for a zombie novel, it's not a good book for yeah. you, right? And I always have to warn people too that, like, my manuscript wish list is what I want from authors who I don't work with yet, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, if I have a fantastic horror author who's already on my list, whose work I love, and they have a zombie novel, you know, like a year from now, and they come to me and say, you know, I have this zombie book, I'm not going to say to them, like, no, I don't represent zombie books, like in (laughs) the vast majority of um, circumstances, like I do have a couple of hard lines where I do ask people to change things sometimes. But that's not one of them. (laughs) Um, But in terms of like things that I'm going to voluntarily and enthusiastically want to take on, like something that's super trendy right now that also sort of squeaks me out is not it. (laughs) You know, so it's interesting because sometimes I get people who say like, they'll send me emails and they'll be like, you know, I know you said in your manuscript wishlist, you don't want this, but just in case. And I have a really (laughs) hard time with that because I'm like, you're already telling me I'm not going to like your book. So like, why... (laughs) Like, why do you think this is the right fit for me? Unless sometimes there is a really compelling reason, but more often than not, it's just, you know, people are not necessarily respecting uh, the ask. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you also mentioned here, you're not seeking books with plague, virus, and pandemic themes. Again, I think like a lot of authors have a weird misconception that this is something the publishing issue wants, you know? Oh my God. I think we're very divided on that. (laughs) I think like there have been, you're right. There have been some like already like huge, books that are have pandemic themes and like it's just not personally it's just not my jam as somebody like maybe five years from now I'll be interested in you know other people's perception of this thing that we're going through right now but unless you are like the number one world expert on something chances are good that while we're in the middle of the situation is not the right time to be trying to convince people that your perspective on it is reliable or Interesting. My friend, <laughs> friend Slima Nawaz put out a book uh, mm-hmm. called uh, Songs for the End of the World, which is it is a book yes. that was accepted and going to be published before the pandemic hit. Oh, it's and so hard. It, you know then, you know, yes. For people who don't know, uh, Slima predicted effectively in this novel by accident. She wasn't planning to like prediction, no. but she, but it's, it's a novel about a coronavirus pandemic that takes place. And there's a writer whose book, you know, about a, coronavirus yeah. pandemic comes out and all this had been accepted and run through the editors and everything and set to come out before this pandemic hits 
And uh, all of a sudden her science fiction novel becomes like effectively a work of realism. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, it was a, but that was a weird example uh, yes. where it was like a bunch of flukes aligning. Totally. Although a symbol will happens. tell you, you could almost predict with, you know, like clockwork, yeah. <laughs> this thing was going to happen after she had done yep. this research that horrified her. Uh, but, you know, for the most, yeah. but even that book, uh, which was like right on the forefront and the cusp of all this stuff, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy to publish it. And when they published it, uh, which, and they were planning to publish it, of course, but like, if you get the book, like this isn't even a tale out of school. Like if you get the book, the, the first thing you'll read is like, this book was written before the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. hit and blah, 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 blah. Like they're very much, you know, trying to make it very clear that this isn't an attempt to like cash in on a pandemic or anything. And it's a yeah, wonderful that's book. Really like, but for the most yeah. part, I think people have that attitude that somehow there's some, you know, new popularity here. Yeah, it's very weird. I mean, I think that there was some popularity to those kinds of books beforehand, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think that they're like pandemic books, dystopian books, like all of that kind of stuff. I think that there is a very different perception about it now than there was like three years ago. Um, but there's always been a market for that. I think that the thing is that like, yeah, it feels weird to me to want to like bring capitalism into that <laughs> the way that we're all processing these feelings. So for me, it's a well, strange feeling, but you also not liking zombie books in many ways zombies and virus books are the same yeah you know, exactly <laughs> like at least the modern zombie is effectively yeah. a virus right and uh, a capitalist virus and um it's it's really interesting to me like to kind of just note through some of these things that you want and don't want because i think <laughs> they like the lesson in some ways i think that writers can draw out of it is that like agents are people like they have yeah. their likes and dislikes they're <laughs> not sure. just like automatons you know trying to get the most bang for no. your buck you know they're really trying to work uh with the writers that they find interesting mm -hmm. that they think they can do a good job working with and you know and really help kind of bring these books into the world in uh in the best way that they possible which may or may not involve yeah. you know how the writer thought <laughs> uh in their without with context, you know, was the best idea. Yeah. And honestly, I could probably go through my manuscript wish list and color code it for like what things mm -hmm. are personal and what things are like market and what things are like just sure. traditional publishing challenges that like I'm not <laughs> like the best at or that I'm not the strongest in, you know. Can you talk about some of the terms that you use that I think are common terms, but a lot of writers don't know. Like, for example, upmarket. Not a lot of people yeah. know what upmarket means. Um, so could you just maybe explain that? And uh, and also just the difference. You you represent both literary and commercial fiction. I do. Uh, whereas some authors don't, or some yeah. agents don't. Um, but can you just explain a little bit about, like, one, what's the difference between literary and commercial fiction in terms of how, like, an agent would use those words and how they're used Absolutely. in the industry? And also what's upmarket mean? For sure. So... It, for me personally, it mostly comes down to the writing style when I'm reading a query. Um, literary books tend to be, for me, like more on the meditative kind of poetic end of the craft spectrum, um, whereas commercial books tend to be like much more on the accessible end of the craft spectrum. When people call things like voicey, that's what I'm always looking for in commercial books is that kind of like really confessional tone where it sounds like somebody is just having a conversation with you um, and it's really easy to follow and you can kind of lose yourself in it that way whereas with literary I think it's almost like the I mean I don't really believe in opposites but if you were going to go down that spectrum the way you would get lost in a literary book is more through you know like imaginative detail poetic language metaphor like those kinds of things um, I don't love the stereotype that literary books need to be like super pretentious I'm not really into that um, style of writing that's like very very um, highbrow and academic I still think literary should be able to be enjoyed by lots of people um, I don't think you need like four dollar words every three seconds to make a literary book really enjoyable but I do think there is something about kind of the approach to um you know like insight and reflection and sort of exploration in a literary book that's a little bit different than something that's more character or plot driven on the commercial side of things um 
and I always tell people, I think like the best way to get a sense for which books are which, at least for my taste, are kind of, if you look at like, um, maybe today is the right, the right day to talk about this, but like, if you look at like the books that get longlisted for the Giller, <laughs> like those are going to be your like literary kind of gems, right? And if you're writing in that arena, like those are the books that you're kind of competing against in terms of sales and award nominations among other things but also you know funding and reviews and all of that kind of stuff um placement in bookstores um and then versus if you go to like a grocery store and you're looking on their shelves for like at you know when you're at the cash and there's like a bunch of paperback books in front of you um ironically it's like the only place I see books these days because we're still in like quasi lockdown in Toronto so I can like picture my shopper's bookshelf uh very clearly right now in my mind but those books are more what I would call commercial books like they're ones that you know you expect for basically anybody to be able to pick up the paperback and just like enjoy it for the story that it is um for all of my books I like them to have some sort of like thought-provoking aspect so I don't really think that commercial books need to be dumbed down for people I think lots of people are in it for like learning things and for you know having their ideas changed or molded by what they're reading um and likewise I don't think that literary books should be without plot <laughs> I really like books to have a story you know um but there is there are some differences in like your target audience where they might be sold um who you're going to compete against that kind of stuff so um you know like the most successful commercial books I would say are the ones that you know like everybody would see their name on a cover and recognize it Dan Brown Lee Child Stephen King whoever um they're like your household book names typically um and then upmarket, I would say, is like, if you were on a spectrum from like one to 10, where like 10 is literary and one is commercial, I would say that upmarket is like a six, like a solid six or 6.5, maybe. Um, so it's books that, you know, have a little bit of like a literary taste to them or a literary like feel when you're reading them. They are like a little more meandering. Um, they're not like quite as straightforward as your average, like, commercial novel might be um but they're the kind of thing that people pick up typically for like book clubs or long plane rides or um they tend to get reviewed in like newspapers as opposed to getting reviewed in um like I'm trying to think where we even review commercial books anymore like blogs yeah. <laughs> um, like but yeah they tend to be I would say they're like in the middle in terms of accessibility and in terms of like the speed at which you might be expected to read them or what kinds of audiences they're targeting um I would compare them to like when people say like women's fiction they often are referring to like upmarket books or like book club books are often um I hear a lot of millennial fiction these days, which I think is like the most funny term, but I think that in a lot of senses, people mean upmarket books when they're saying those kinds of things. Or upmarket YA or something. Exactly. I, what I found upmarket these days seems to be the new word that people are just using yes. for in between commercial literary. Exactly. Like, like they used to say slipstream and then they were saying totally. something else before that, I forget. Like Publishers things like also love to say like genre bending. That's like the yeah. word I hear all the time. It might not be like 100% a genre book, which we would categorize as something more commercial, but it might have aspects of genre, which like takes it out of that kind of like pure literary, you know. Like Time field. Traveler's Wife, I think is yes. the example I always use. It's like, it's clearly a science fiction book, but it also yeah. is clearly like, a, you know, kind of quote unquote literary like it, it, I feel it's like kind Station of, 11 too. People like hover mm -hmm. in the bookstore, like where mm -hmm. does this go, you know? Yeah, and it's weird. It's almost like um, a kind of like horror, I think, is a interesting genre to look at so because people look down on horror traditionally, but then all of a sudden they started trying to justify it. So then you, you'll have like <laughs> horror and then there's literary horror and then there's yes. like upmarket horror, but yeah. really it's just all the same thing. But there's this perception about how yeah. it's going to be marketed. Um, exactly and where the writer maybe sees themselves as a stylist or not yeah that question of marketing really it's something that comes up like way earlier than people think it does so like when you're saying marketing you're meaning like when people are like you know getting their ad on a bus shelter or whatever but like when mm -hmm. we're thinking marketing as agents often it comes like even when I'm pitching a book to an editor yeah, because sure. like I actually really hate it I, I think it's something that 
editors and agents both really struggle with, but often imprints aren't open to things that they aren't familiar with, right? So if you have a really, really commercial imprint, I wouldn't be able to pitch them like a literary horror book because it's just not something that they necessarily know how to sell or have the connections to publicize or even like sometimes their editors won't really be like the most qualified editors for that genre. Um, but if I come along with like something that's really, really great and super marketable, then yeah, they're all over it. So that question of like where your book fits in the market, like I think about that even from the query stage, which is like a little premature, maybe there's still some shaping to do at that point. But unfortunately, like it really does determine a lot about how I build my submission lists and who um, I know who might be interested in buying the book or publishing the book. I think there's a lot of misperceptions that surround this topic that yeah. writers have. So one really common one I hear a lot is people will think, people pitch, will tell me like, oh, you know, I'm writing a book that is, it's, uh, you know, it's a zombie novel, but it's also a romance. So it's like fans of romance and fans of zombie novels will both love it. It's like, no, actually, neither fans of romance nor zombie lo- novels exactly. will love it. Only like this Venn diagram in the middle yeah. will love it. Now, those people will love it. Yes. And there is a market there and it may be a very profitable market, uh, but you got all of a sudden you've actually like it, it like when you pitch it to your age, to the agent, the, yeah. the agent isn't like seeing it the way you're seeing it. Cause you've got no. the wrong lens on, you know? Yeah. You've already created a huge hurdle for yourself because mm-hmm. if I take it to a romance, in fact, I actually did this and I'm sure that the client wouldn't even mind me talking about it necessarily. I did this early on in my career because at one point, um, I definitely thought romance authors were a little more flexible than they actually are (laughs) prior to, like, I had a lot of learning to do in the romance kind of sphere when I first began. Um, And it was one of my, like, first big projects because I really like reading rom-coms and I sort of thought to myself, like, oh, there's lots of, you know, like, there's lots of different rom-coms. So surely the other romance genres, there's wiggle room too. Incorrect. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Romance is so formulaic. And if you have a book that has romance elements that's great you can pitch it to general like contemporary editors and that's fine but if you're writing a romance book and you want it to be sold by a romance publisher it really needs to check like very specific boxes so unless like once your book is romance with paranormal elements like if it doesn't follow all of the very specific guidelines for paranormal romance like you're pretty much done um and i had this experience with a romantic suspense book where I was really hopeful and excited about this great book that I signed that was 100% romantic suspense, except that the protagonist wasn't law enforcement. I don't like representing books that have law enforcement in them. It's just like a personal taste and values thing for me. Um, And so I thought this is awesome because it's like a nice twist on you know, like the romantic suspense genre, and we could not sell that book. I still haven't sold it. It is, I love it so much. And I, you know, like I can sing its praises until the cows come home, but unless I have a marketing team that's willing to take the chance on it, like there's just no way. People who read genre books, like they come in with a set of expectations. And if you're not meeting those expectations, like they're going to put the book down and they're going to be mad about it. (laughs) So it's really tricky. And it doesn't mean that you can't, you know, take that book to another place necessarily no. but it's like it, it does sort of like there is like a limitation that mm-hmm. is built into the book now that limitation could change because yeah. the markets change but i think like a lot of writers just don't understand the market and That's it. they and change in the market is very slow like it has to be yes. very incremental you know you can you can step like an inch over the line of what the genre expects of you and and I could probably find like a great editor and a great marketing team that are like, yes, that's an interesting new twist, but to make like a huge change in one book, like forget it, it's not going to happen. So it's, yeah, that change is like not as radical as people think it is. Yeah. And and I think this is one way that agents can really help a lot of writers is that I I think you got to give it a weird catch 22 because on one hand, the writers who really most need an agent are the ones who don't understand the markets. Mm -hmm. And also because they don't understand the markets, they will have a hard time finding the right agent. It's true. <laughs> so yeah. it's a difficult thing. Like, what do you suggest that? So I think like something like Spanish risk risk, I think is really enlightening. And I wish more agents would do this kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, because it, it does sort of explain in a really detailed way, the kinds of things you're interested in. And it shows that you're interested in a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So like on one hand, it's very narrow, like it's very much this, this, that, <laughs> and the other, but in other ways it's, it's very expansive, like romance to horror, you know, yeah. essay collections to, um, you know, cookbooks, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating wish list in that respect, uh, like the diversity of it, but also like the way in which you've got these very specific um, things you're looking for uh, as your preferences. I, I mean, I think that, so one, like something writers can do is like do more research on agents and like Definitely. really specifically agent, like individual agents, mm -hmm. like, uh, and understand, I think, writers i think need to kind of just understand a bit more fully like this idea that yeah these agents have their um ideas of what they want which is partly personal partly informed by market conditions and what they know uh is and isn't attractive to the editors that they know mm -hmm. um but then also like there's just things that they want. Uh, like you've got this um, interesting, great list about like things I wish, you know, somebody would have. It's like, well, what about a uh, <laughs> an adult retelling of the story of St. Werburgh? Do you, you know, know this story? It's such no, a I was going to ask story. you about that. <laughs> it's about a saint who had magical geese, ultimately. Like that's the very short version of that sure. story. Uh, yeah, it's just such a great, I think it's because it's like a little known story. It's not one that I've ever seen a retelling of before, but I think that that one in particular, like I, I feel like you could retell it so many ways that would be so fascinating. Um, but we're seeing mostly retellings these days in young adult. And I don't think it would really fly in young adult because it's not like a super, uh, you know, like recognizable. I feel like the ones that do really well in young adult are often the ones that are like, um, you know, fairy tales or uh, Shakespeare plays, like things that teenagers kind of already have a reference, like a frame of reference for. Um, and so they can kind of be fascinated by the differences or, you know, you can integrate it into a high school curriculum or something like that. But I'd love to see this story on shelves for adults. I think you could do weird things with it. <laughs> And another thing you were looking for, which is like your dream list here is, uh, you're, you've got a list as weirdly specific ass, which I love. Um, anything in any age or genre range, genre or age range about life as a feminine K-pop trainee or performer written based <laughs> on lived experience. So somebody who's actually was yeah. a K-pop trainee or performer should get in touch with you and write a novel. hundred percent. I've only ever found book. one book that's about this culture that's in English. I mean, maybe in the Korean market, they have dozens. I don't know. I don't speak Korean. So, um, but when I read it, I was fascinated. It is a very unique way to live your adolescent years. And I, there's, yeah, I've, there's one young adult book that I found that was written by a Korean Canadian author. Um, and I loved it. I just <laughs> ate it up, but all the others that I found have been written by people who are writing kind of from the outside. And I find that like in those kinds of cultures, there's so much that's like kind of in clubby, you know, um, I love subculture books, like in general, I grew up you know, like riding horses, for example, there's so much weird stuff that happens in the horseback riding world um, that you would never know unless you'd lived it or like figure skating is kind of like that too. Like there are all these, you know, like what other things like one time I heard someone say that they would really love a murder mystery set in like the tattoo artist subculture and I was like oh yeah you could do so many like weird things with that <laughs> um I have you can't see them right now but I have all kinds of tattoos and so uh yeah it would just be like I love those like very specific settings that people can only really know if they've been there and you get to kind of peel back the curtain a little bit um and k-pop is such a weird it's like it's amazing there's so many similarities with kind of like the 90s like boy band culture that we had in North America but there are a lot of things that are very different too um and I think it's just like really rich for storytelling but I don't know that we've really gotten there yet yeah and I just want to point out like so somebody looking at this I think would maybe just kind of maybe wonder why it's even listed <laughs> here like what are the odds yeah. <laughs> of k-pop former k-pop you know you really never star know. Star person. You never know. But I think like a writer like looking at that, I think mm -hmm. I think the way to look at stuff like that is like it gives a sense clearly. Like you just started to explicate it a little bit. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're interested in this one really specific thing, but also it's just an example yeah. of the kind of thing you're interested in. 100%. One, if somebody has some actual lived experience in some weird subculture, particularly sure. trying to professionalize in the subculture that's hard to professionalize in, where there's all totally. these in-groups, there's all these uh you know, unwritten rules. There's mm -hmm. a weird, you know, you can imagine all these interesting power politics that would be in play. Um, 
And then this public versus private disparity exactly. seems like just thematically something you're interested in. And there's so much tension in those kinds of like high pressure environments too, right? Mm -hmm. It's a really rich area for writing. And I feel like, yeah, anything like that, that really teases out that kind of tension that can be really positive, but also really toxic and competitive. Yeah, I think there's definitely a market for that. But even if somebody had a novel about, you know, uh, set in you know the 20s and it's a woman trying to make it in the military or something Definitely. like there's like there's like even though you're not asking for that like that kind of thing is in that wheelhouse potentially so absolutely I, yeah. I think like the way that artists I, I, often I'll see writers are like looking at these lists and their eyes glaze over <laughs> you know like, yeah. it's like well I don't either they'll do one of two things they'll like they'll start writing a book about young cryptids <laughs> and just yes. thinking this is their way to get an agent. Uh, right. But really, like, unless your heart's in that, you know, you don't even want that agent in, in many no, ways. No, exactly. And it's going to be like a long road for you if you just start writing mm -hmm. based on somebody's, you know, like weirdly specific ask, I guess. Like, yeah. That I have gotten a couple of queries from people that, you know, have read my like weird specific list and been like, oh, I'm already working on this. Or like, I, you know, I wrote this a few years ago and I queried it and I didn't get any responses like that kind of thing. And I love that. But if you start, if you look at the list and you're like, okay, I'm going to do that right now. Like <laughs> you have to make sure yeah. that I still want it. Like, you know, 18 months from now when you've finished the very first draft, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of work. And then the other thing I think is just interesting to kind of jump around you. So you, 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 you have some specific, you say you're a couple of times um, you point out, I'm really interested in identity driven accessible books with high yeah. concept plots and confessional line level writing, uh, in which a setting plays a prominent role. So I wonder if you could just talk about a couple of those things. I mean, it's pretty obvious, yeah. I think what an identity driven book is, or even what an accessible book is, but I don't think a lot of people are confused about high concept plots. Can you just explain yeah. a little bit about that and what you mean by the setting playing a prominent role? Because I think that's Absolutely. a thing that I think a lot of people, especially Canadians, have yeah. the misperception <laughs> that publishers want books that have no discernible setting. Right. And I mean, so high concept to start with is one of those words that I get asked a lot, sort of like upmarket. It's one of those mm -hmm. ones that like has an industry meaning, but it doesn't really, if you like read just the literal words, it doesn't mean very much on a surface level. Um, for me, high concept books are books that have a strong hook, I guess. So if, you know, if the basic premise that I use it a lot with rom-com and horror, and that's partly because I get a lot of rom-com and horror that don't really have something unique about them. And that's why I have to walk away from them. Like they might have great characters. They might have, you know, like great writing, but if there's not something that's like timely and thought provoking about the book, it's going to be really difficult to sell um, to a publisher. So like, I'm trying to think of like a real world example and I'm coming up totally blank, but like the flat chair, for example, I think I list on my manuscript wish list as a favorite of mine, or at least I've used that in the past. Um, it's a rom-com obviously. And it's a rom-com based on like a pretty normal trope, which is like the, uh, oh shoot, there's only one bed, like romance storyline. It's like that taken to the extreme. Um, the hook of course is that is this idea of somebody like sharing an apartment with a stranger. It's a weird concept. It's like something that you know like most people would not consider doing but the characters in this book are sort of like in these awkward circumstances that make it the right fit for them and that makes it kind of fascinating and sort of when I the k-pop book is actually a good example of that too in a way like I do love I love books about subculture and I love books about um you know like power and how do we get power and how do we navigate places um that are like high tension places like in the world. I think those things are really interesting, but K-pop in particular is like something that I think not many people in North America know an awful lot about in the way that people who have lived in that culture um, know. And so like, that's something for me that would be really hooky. You know, it's like a really unique kind of approach to storytelling. So whether it was like a horror book or a rom-com or a contemporary story, whatever, like the idea of setting it in kind of like this K-pop world is something that I haven't seen very much of. Um, just like The Flat Chair, I think was very popular because it took this like very familiar trope that like romance re readers already loved, but it put this really strange kind of twist on it where, you know, these people were forced to share an apartment together and 
never see each other. Like that's a weird thing that most of us don't go through. Um, and I really like that. Actually, Satellite Love, uh, which is a book that came out this year, is another one that's like, I just feel so strange about in such a great way. Like it's just your basic love story, except that one of the protagonists is a literal space satellite. Like that is an <laughs> odd concept, sure. you know? Um, it's not something that comes up all the time. So when I say high concept, usually I'm looking for that hook. I'm looking for whatever it is that like when I read the pitch of the book, I'm going to go like, okay, I'm like understanding this, but like there's going to be something in there that I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely want to know how that turns out. Here's the example I always use to explain mm -hmm. the concept. So this is a log line for a story I just haven't yeah. got around to writing yet. But <laughs> it's uh, it's the second oldest man in the world tries to kill the oldest man in the world to yes. get into the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh -huh. So it very quickly is like, yes. a, as, as you say, it's hooky very quickly, but it also like gives you the conflict. Totally. That, and exactly. it's very clear, like the kinds of things that would happen. Yeah, and even the, for sure the tone of it is clear. It'd be a comedy, right? A kind of dark yeah. comedy. So like there, there's a lot like kind of packed into a really condensed sentence. That makes like me that. think of what's that series that's very popular right now. Is it the, it's a day of the week, Tuesday or Thursday murder club that yeah. is, you know, the like Steve it's all Martin, about like, David, yeah, like yeah, I haven't seen it yet, true but crime and murder and whatever, but it's it <laughs> seniors, you know, yeah, which yeah. like, that's something that I think in cozy mm -hmm. mysteries, we've seen it, but not so much in like the drama thriller, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. It's got like a weird twist to it that you like maybe haven't, it's, I think when people say that like books have like a je ne sais quoi, like that's what they're looking for is that thing that like piques their interest, you know? Yeah. My, my friend Phil and I came up with that log line and what I, what yeah. I like about it as an example, I, I think what for me, high concept, I think the easy way to explain to people is like, when you hear that sentence, you know, if you want to read it or not. Read yes. A hundred percent. So very quickly, like the concept is clear enough that it or high enough as you want to, that it filters in or out like exactly. the audience. Absolutely. And, you know, now uh, you've got a couple of oh, quick things. There was something else in there that you wanted me to dig into, which was the setting. Oh, which right? yeah, the setting things. So you started talking a little bit about that. Could you talk me a bit more yeah. about why the setting is so important to you? Because I think yeah. a lot of people have the idea still that every book should be set in New York, even <laughs> if they've sure. never been to New York. You know what I mean? Like absolutely. I so I mean for me, setting is. I always tell people that like, this is a bit of a cliche way to talk about it, but I always tell people that like setting is basically one of your characters. Um, and what I mean when I say that is that like, it needs to be for me at least like as fully developed as your characters are. So it has, you know, like a firm sense of place. It plays a role in your story. It has, you know, physical and emotional characteristics, all of those things. Um, it's true that historically like books have sold more easily when they've been set in the United States, but I think they're at least in the United States, if not New York. Um, but I think that what that really translates to is being able to, for a reader, especially because, okay, a lot of like, like, let's be real about the reading market in North America for a second is like, you know, a huge percentage is middle Midwestern white women. Like, so if you picture like your Midwestern white woman, who's like, you know, a mom probably in her like twenties, thirties going to Costco and seeing a book on a table in Costco where she's like, you know, got 84 other things on her mind she's like wondering if they have the right bagels and like her kid is like maybe like getting out of soccer practice soon she's gonna like go to that table I, I mean we all probably have relatives like this too like gonna go to that table she's gonna scan the covers for like something that looks the most relatable read a couple lines on the back grab it bring it home cool but the way that you actually get them to finish the book is by having something in it that they can relate to because if your entire brain is taken up with trying to figure out what's going on in the book. You're never going to get through it. Like when you're living this life. Right. And so there, there's definitely things to be said for books that aren't that, but for books that you want to be like highly marketable, I think that the thing that I always consider is whether or not like that woman could relate to the setting in the book. So, you know, New York is the easy go-to because it's like the thing that's been used in media, like not just books, but like TV, like all kinds of things for like a huge amount of time and so people can sort of picture themselves there they know what like the taxis look like whatever um I'm not particularly interested in books that are like just based on like a New York life so for me I really want 
people to be able to understand the setting as they're reading in the same way that they would understand what New York is like. So a book that one of my authors wrote uh, that's coming out next year in February, I was like, what month are we in right now? Um, in February is set in Boston and the Berkshires. And mm. I've never been to the Berkshires. We had to have a lot of phone conversations about what the Berkshires were like um, when we were going through the editing of this book. But I think that at you know, the version of the book that's going to be published is really like that setting comes to life in that book. Like you can feel what it's like to be there. And I think it is a unique setting that like not a lot of people have access to and not a lot of people have been to, but if it's really well crafted, you can still get that same relatability and that same sense of place that you would get from a book, you know, that used all those invisible, easy kind of shortcut clues to tell you that it was set in New York or that it was set in, you know, the Hamptons or somewhere that's like a little more known. So I do think that, I mean, there is definitely an appetite for books set in New York. Don't get me wrong. Like it's definitely an easy sell to an editor to be able to say like that city that you live in, it's set there. <laughs> um, the majority of editors live in New York for the big five publishers. But uh, I think that if you're going to go outside of that, it has to be something that's really, really rich and lush. And that way people will love it just as much as, um, you know, like if it was something that they were familiar with before picking up the book. I think there's just also, you mentioned before, like you really like how when the setting is almost like a character. And I yeah. think like, I think there is a really strong draw to books where in addition to the plot and the characters and so on, they're like learning something or immersed in yeah. the location you know, in a way that is almost like a vacation, totally. <laughs> strangely. Even well, if you don't want to be there, it's like yeah. you're on an island with a monster. You know, we're trapped in this factory. Like even if you don't want to be there in that location in real life, <laughs> there's like yeah. there's an appeal to the insularity of get and getting to know like uh, a, an environment. You know the way yes. that like an office comedy, like The Office, is part of the attractiveness of it. For you sure. Know? Or you know. Uh, you know, you mentioned the K-pop thing. Like I can imagine like that just being fascinating. <laughs> totally. Um, not even caring that much about K-pop, but like I can see like the power plays that would, what is one thing that's fascinating about J-pop is that a lot mm -hmm. of those bands will own theaters and they'll play yes. every night, you know. Which is amazing, and, right? Which it's is so amazing. bizarre. Yeah, to, yeah. I mean, maybe they're not doing it these days, but like broadly speaking, mm -hmm. like it's just such a foreign um, way of doing things compared to like how we think about a band touring around, you know, but these, yes. they don't have time to turn around. No, <laughs> <laughs> like they gotta, they gotta play every night, you know, yeah. three times a night uh, or whatever. And so it, it's, it's, it's just the unfamiliarity of that world, if it's drawn well, and if it's compelling in totally. and of itself, I think is like, you can see very easily, I think how that would be attractive. Whereas like, not to pick on New York or anything, but like there, there's certain <laughs> locations that have become generic and yes. they can be very well done still, but they often yeah. just have, are kind of like the readers kind of is fine with them and it passes by. Like, totally. as you say, they don't sure want to be in a world. Yeah. And, and they don't want to be in a world where they don't, that doesn't make sense to them. Right. But they would rather have a new world make sense. Exactly. Know? Now, yeah. just, and when you mentioned like an Island with a monster on it, like that book is going to be way scarier if not only you're battling with the monster, but also like you have this hostile island, right? Mm -hmm. If you really build that out as like an element of your story, to me, there shouldn't be anything taking up word count that's not intentional. So if that's part of your story that you want to write in, that you're like on this weird ass island somewhere, like, like write it in, you know, like make me feel like I'm there. And then if not, then set it in New York. It's fine. <laughs> I, I think they're tropes that writers go to and because they're yeah. comfortable with it. And I, I always tell people like when I teach creative writing, I'm like, you got to like identify those things and then question yes. them because it's not, people will often make up these rules of writers. Like they say like, Oh, right. well, you can't have a character wake up in the morning at the start of the story. <laughs> right. So that's usually a bad idea, but you could do it. Uh, what if you put them on a houseboat? What if they wake up yeah, and then absolutely. they're drinking coffee on this houseboat they, you know, they, they kind of like, they wake up, they're in a swamp, you know, drunk on a houseboat. They, they dump the, their, 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 uh, you know, leftover still alcohol over the <laughs> side. They scoop up some swamp water. They drain it through a sock, you know, yep, exactly. and then they start making coffee with it. As they're drinking coffee, the 
cup shadows because somebody was sh- is shooting at them. That's like, it. That's not you, your you, average morning, right? <laughs> right. But like it, it is still the morning waking up. Yeah. It's just that I've just taken and deconstructed the elements of it and just yeah. made every single one of them unfamiliar. Totally. Uh, it, so it's machinic. I can do that on a very simple craft way uh, mm-hmm. without even necessarily thinking too much about it. But like writers will not often do that kind of analysis of what they've done. Absolutely. Like they're just kind of like go with this trope or that trope. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they can't get away with it. If they kind of just, in that case, I'm just using the setting really. And then just introducing a conflict element, but like, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, it's the unfamiliarity of it now. Like we, we saw with true detective that kind of Louisiana setting played so much into the, uh, that's, you know, that, that show mm-hmm. to the point where some people would, were overlooking flaws of the show in other respects, <laughs> but like, um, you know, it, it just is one of those things where I think it's really, um, it's such an important like aspect of the story potentially Yeah, that is sure. so, it's so often a shame when writers aren't using it in some way. Yeah, I completely agree. And I feel like, honestly, like you'll see the marketability and success of that too. And even just like, like huge TV properties and things like that. Like, why Mm -hmm. did they make CSI in like eight different cities? You know, part of it is because, you know, the atmosphere of those cities like changes the kinds of stories you get to tell and it gives you more options. It gives you more, you know, like even just in terms of like the, like the atmospheric elements it gives you a lot more to play with if you're not constantly in the same place all the time and so I feel like you know like consumers readers viewers whatever are hungry for that but it has to be done in a way that you know really immerses them and not that just gets kind of shoehorned in as like a side Mm -hmm. note yeah I think that shoehorning as you point out is the is the death of so many things before I let you go I'm gonna let you I gotta ask you to talk about how you went to college for circus arts and spent nearly a decade performing and coaching at a professional level. I did do that. I, yeah, when I was uh, growing up, (laughs) this is like one of my cringy stories. When I was growing up, uh, my first boyfriend ever dumped me when I was like in middle school and I was grieving as one does when you're like 14 years old. And so I learned how to juggle um, and really got involved in circus in Newfoundland, which is where I grew up, which is like a very small community there, as you can imagine, um, and decided for a brief period of time that like that was what I wanted to spend my life doing. And actually, to be honest, like that does it. I feel like it was sort of a step on the way to like figuring out where I am now, because um it was, I loved being in a creative environment all the time. That was really, really fun. Um, but I didn't love performing. I didn't love uh, like the criticism that came with that. And just like the pace of that life um, really didn't do well for me. And I'm also like, I'm an, I'm a chronic overthinker. I'm like very like to a detriment uh, intellectual, I think in some ways. And so I really struggled being in an environment that was like very athletic all the time. And that didn't really take itself very seriously. Um, I spent a lot of time kind of questioning things that people didn't want questioned. And so um, that's how I ended up doing a lot of coaching. And I really loved that. Um, that was how I paid my way through my university studies largely until I moved to Toronto. Um, and it was so much fun. It was like really great getting to like help people craft their acts and their, you know, performance. And I worked a lot on artistic um I was like an artistic specialist for a while. So uh, I consulted with bigger circus companies who were trying to put together more conceptual shows and things like that. Um, But yeah, I also just taught kids how to jump on a trampoline safely and things like that for a long time. Um, Yeah, it was super, super fun. And when I decided to leave, it was mostly because my body is just like, couldn't handle it anymore. It's not a very um, friendly profession for grownups. And so um, I ended up getting a bunch of injuries and stuff. But uh, I think that publishing is like the first sort of job I found where I'm like straddling both kind of artistic and intellectual worlds in a way that's really, really satisfying. So um, I I do feel like my circus life is like a little bit relevant also because when I read books about the circus, I get like a little bit hypercritical of them, I think, when they are uh, unrealistic to sort of the challenges that people face in that industry. So that's another subculture that I love when people delve into. I was going to say, it sounds like it certainly would play a part in uh, your sort of attraction to subcultures or just yeah. the idea that there's the richness in this environment here for sure and, and like the sort of grittiness too you know like I love I think I love stories 
I think a lot of people do where something that's like really shiny and perfect on the outside, like you really kind of get into what's maybe creepy or twisty or tense on the, like the behind David, the sheen. David Lynch uh, sort of yeah. <laughs> idea of like this, you know, the surface and the depth being at the strange uh, opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I think the like popularity of domestic thrillers has really put that into uh, high relief over the last few years that, you know, we all have a little bit of that voyeur in us that, you know, you want to see what's going on behind the facades of things. <laughs> well, I appreciate you talking to me and I just want to just to end off, I'd like to maybe ask you, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, notes here in your manuscript wish list that you're open to queries, um, you know, that you only accept queries for complete revised words works under a thousand K, you know, and so on and so forth. You've got a Westwood submission page for details, yeah. but like just in a broad sense, if somebody is a writer mm-hmm. and they're looking into agents, I guess my really quick, maybe it's not a quick question, but like my yeah. final sort of like all encompassing <laughs> question is, you know, what makes, uh, why should a writer have an agent and why should they, what should they do to figure out what agent they should have. Right, that's a big question for sure, but it's definitely a useful one. Um, I think that, so what I always tell people, and you and I were talking about this a little bit before because um, I do sign authors that are like at various stages in their careers, right? And so I think for different clients, you always play like a bit of a different role depending on where they're at and what it is they have going on. Um, For me personally, I think that agents are most useful when people, you know, they know they want to write, they know that they want it to be a part of their professional life. I think that that's something that um, people get tripped up on because it really is like publishing is like any professional industry. It demands a lot of people. It has a lot of like specific kind of, um, I'm, I'm struggling to come up with another word for demands because that's really what I mean. You know, like the if you want to be successful in publishing, it's like being successful in any other professional industry. You need to have the time and the energy and the commitment. And I think maybe even more so than in some industries, frankly, because writing is really hard. Um, it can be isolating for a lot of people. It can be really difficult to find ways to like make enough money um, as a writer if you want to be doing that full time. Um, or if you don't want to be doing that full time, like finding the balance of, you know, what else you're going to do while you're you know, pursuing that as more of a passion or what have you. But um, I think the role of an agent in that is that um, we're really good at sort of taking things off of people's plates so that they can focus on the creative aspect. And I always, I think that it's very difficult for authors to, um, well, for anybody really, to sort of compartmentalize the fact that um, publishing is so much about capitalism when it comes down to it. I feel like I always say to my authors, like publishing is, you know, there's lots of good things about books. Like books have all kinds of like awesome layers to them, but publishing as an industry is capitalism all the way down. Um, and it's really something I think it bears repeating because I think that people forget, you know, like how much of this industry, how many times I have to like step aside on a query that I love because I just know that like there's no possible way I could sell it to a big five editor like it's really really hard so I think that having those kinds of capitalist considerations like sales of the book like contract negotiation like you know like chasing the publicity team to make sure they get back to you um following up on like you know when you've got a publisher who's like not getting back to you about like your cover design or whatever (laughs) all of that stuff like that's what I spend most of my days doing when I'm not you know like editing or reading queries or whatever um and I really enjoy like I'm a very type a like organized person and so it gives me some a lot of satisfaction to be able to take that kind of stuff off of people's plates and be like listen this stuff is really hard to navigate so you focus on like writing the thing and making it really perfect and I'll focus on all the rest of this (laughs) you know um I think that some authors I think some authors struggle with that like I don't know that it is right for every author I think a lot of authors who have a background in particularly self-publishing um like they like to have all of the control over every tiny little aspect. And sometimes that can be difficult to have if you have an agent as like sort of a middle person in that like relationship between you and your editor. So I think there's always like a balance to find. Um, But yeah, I think that that's sort of like the strength of having an agent is not having to learn all the minutia of the industry in the sense that, um, you know, 
how to do a proper submission or like how to format the document, like all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think that those are the reasons why agents have a lot of appeal to authors because it means you can focus on, you know, your creative relationship with the editor who ultimately acquires your work. You can focus on, you know, what you're going to write next and what you're writing now, as opposed to wondering who you should submit it to, or, you know, what the trends are in publishing these days or what have you. Um, it, but in terms of looking like what to look for in an agent or who to look for, I think it does take a lot of work. And I think that a lot of people are very anxious to rush through the query process, um, which I totally understand because it's long and it's stressful and it's super annoying. Um, but definitely like I've had to step aside sometimes when people come back to me and say like, you know, I have to make a decision in one week because I'm like, there is no possible way I can get to know you enough in one week. Like if you've just sent me like, like a cold query, like two days ago, you know, like it's just not a thing. Um, sometimes I will enter into those fights if it's an author who I've known and enjoyed their work before because I know kind of the creative side what I'm getting into a little bit more but very rarely um I'm much more likely to sort of say like you know what like probably if that's your priority if that timeline is your priority I'm not the right person for you um and part of that is also setting up realistic expectations because publishing as an industry overall is the slowest <laughs> so it's important to know going into things that like you know things aren't necessarily going to happen in a couple of weeks it's more likely a couple of months or a couple of years so it really is a long game for me um i hope that that was very rambling but i hope it answered your question i <laughs> know i think it makes uh, perfect sense and is a great answer and so, so again uh, people can find more about emmy at uh, westwood creative artists the agency that Emmy works with, and uh, where else are you uh, online in a useful capacity? <laughs> um, I should. do have a book blog, which I refer people to sometimes. I started it when I was a bookseller, so I post less frequently now than I used to, but it's at uh, booksbeyondbinaries.blog, um, and if people want to get a sense of the kinds of things I like, that's like a, a really great place to go because um, I interview authors and uh, review books and things like that there, I make reading lists and stuff. And so if people want to get a sense for like the kinds of things I'm reading or the kinds of things that I'm enjoying, that's a great place to look. Um, I'm also on Twitter, uh, Emmy underscore of underscore spines, uh, like book spines, but also like creepy spines. <laughs> um <laughs> And I try to post as much as possible about kind of like the things that are on my mind or the things I'm consuming or my timelines, <laughs> things that will be useful to authors and not just uh, screaming into the void <laughs> of Twitter. <laughs> nice. Well, yeah. thanks so much for talking to me and uh, have a great day. And uh, Thank you. thanks for, you know, helping to enlighten people a bit about the very murky waters of uh, <laughs> publishing. Thank which, you. you know, I think often are kind of intentionally murky. So I always appreciate when people like yourself are kind of stepping out to try to kind of clarify things for people, for writers oh gosh, who I think I otherwise, too. you know, it, it's, it's a hard industry to kind of get a handle on in many respects. It is. Yeah, so, it definitely is. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but certainly one reason is just uh, that there's a kind of a weird investment that the industry has in keeping the waters murky. Oh my gosh, so, we can do a whole other podcast yeah. on that one day. <laughs> well, maybe we will one day, yeah. For sure. but, uh, okay. Thanks so much for talking to me and uh, have you. a great day. You too.